morning and welcome to Rising Friday. The January 6th commission had its season opener last night. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But Emily, you were on the border recently doing some reporting. Yeah, I spent the earlier part of the week in South Texas and northern Mexico, um, and we'll be talking about that later in the show, just checking in on the situation, which I believe is, is fairly characterized as a humanitarian crisis mm -hmm. um, at the border. So we'll have an update on that. We'll have some footage actually on that, some footage uh, from our conversations with migrants. We also have Lee Fong on to talk about a super interesting story he wrote for The Intercept about how union busters are now co-opting the language of social justice. Very excited to talk who to could, Lee about that. Who could have seen that come? Right. Just completely out of left field. <laughs> We're also going to have Yegor Kotkin. He's a Russian socialist. He's going to update us on the, the, war in U, the war in Ukraine. We're going to have Dave Dayan, who's going to talk about the uh, Biden administration's capitulation to basically the Chinese solar industry. Also wanted to do a quick update on a story that we've been covering, which is the runoff in, in Colombia. And for people who might forget, Colombia is something like the, the fifth uh, res most recipient of U.S. aid. You know, so this is this is one of our strongest client states around the world. And it and it it pits a former rebel against a Trump like figure in uh, Colombia in the runoff. And he, uh, the Trump like figure, Rodolfo Hernandez, recently gave an interview with The Washington Post. And I wanted to make sure nobody missed this. Absolutely. Just delightful comments from he said <laughs> he referred to his supporters as, quote, messianic and then said that they're brainwashed, just like the hijackers of September 11, 2001. He was asked, are you comparing your supporters to terrorists? Isn't that a bit problematic? And he said, no, 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 I'm not comparing them. What I'm comparing is that after you get into that state, you don't change your position. You don't change it. So, yes, he is comparing them. No, no, he's not comparing. That. He's complimenting. He's, yeah, he's complimenting them. It's very, and as you were pointing out, this is very Fifth Avenue. Shoot somebody on right. Fifth Avenue the, energy. I could shoot somebody in the middle of, of Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting because I think what populist movements tap into is, is often that is something that is so personal for people. And I feel like that's what he's describing in mm -hmm. these, like in this really, I, I think, uh, inartful and bizarre language. But it's true that because people have been disenfranchised um, by so many different uh, powers, around the world, uh, especially in our hemisphere, and, and this, these regions in particular right now, yeah, people are going to um, latch on to leaders with fervor. Um, and that creates all kinds of new challenges politically. And this was his race to lose. Like, he was on track to win this thing. He, he may now end up blowing this. It's next Sunday, not this Sunday, but next Sunday is the election. It wouldn't quite be like having somebody from the Palestinian Authority win an Israeli prime minister election, uh, but it's, it's somewhere in that ballpark if, mm. if, if, this, uh, if you had this kind of a, a shakeup down there. Uh, but speaking of Trump-like figures, we've got Trump himself. Uh, this was played last night uh, during the January 6th hearings. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify and we become president and you are the happiest people mike pence is going to have to come through for us and if he doesn't that will be a, a sad day for our country because you'll never take back our country with weakness you have to show strength and you have to be strong
Cruiser 50. It does look like we're going to have an ad hoc march stepping off here. There's a crowd surge heading east. Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. I will tell you right now. Okay, so Liz Cheney, that, that timeline um, going back and forth between mm. Trump and the how the riot unfolded, I, I find that pretty unpersuasive because what they don't include there is Donald Trump saying we're going to peacefully march down to the Capitol, which I think is completely relevant in this case. I don't, uh, I don't dispute at all that I think his rhetoric was reckless. In fact, I was covering it, and when I was standing there, it's just some of the things he said, I was like, this is going to really like amp people up mm -hmm. in, in an unhelpful way. Um, even when we were closer to the White House um, and I was just covering this, his, his speech. But at the same time, him saying that is relevant to this question of incitement and they don't include it. So people acting on their own accord, that timeline, what's interesting about it is they weren't even at Donald Trump's speech. Mm -hmm. They were marching before. There were people at right. the Capitol, bad actors at the Capitol beforehand. Right, and the, the, I, I don't know if it's even worth talking about it from a legal perspective. I don't, I don't see Merrick Garland actually doing anything right. with regard to Trump. But just from a kind of moral or political question, the question of incitement to me isn't just the speech. It's mm -hmm. like everything after the election. You know, did, did, did his posture toward the election you know, fuel this. Was this something that he wanted to happen? Was it part of their plan, this like Green Bay sweep where he's going to, they're going to pressure Congress to kick the certification back to the states and then they're going to have their, you know, Republican states kick back electors that, that nominate Trump. Was, was causing chaos at the Capitol part of their big plan? And if it wasn't, did they do anything to try to stop it? And that, and that on the flip side is key because it shows whether or not Trump wanted this to happen. And Liz Cheney talks about this. Liz talked about this last night. She kind of was the self-appointed star of the, of the hearing. And she, she laid out, and this was, this was news, I think, unless it's been in some kind of piece that I missed, uh, some of Trump's specific comments about the riot while it was unfolding. And here, here's what Cheney said. You will hear that President Trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. So Trump sued in court to overturn the election. That's his right. Lots of lawsuits follow elections. He failed in every front, every state, every federal court uh, throughout his challenge. He then put all the pressure he had on Mike Pence, who doesn't have the authority to overturn the election, to overturn the election 
up to and including supporting this mob. So to, that, to me, is what makes this a real coup attempt. But I, how did he support the mob? By, not, by, by having the power to have them stand down and not using that power. Like he, the second he came out with a video, hours later, it ended and they all left. So he did come out with the video, though, which when it was, you wouldn't do if you had supported the mob. But, but he did it by the time it was clear that it wasn't going to decapitate the, the, the government. Like, it wasn't, they, did, they weren't going to catch Mike Pence. They weren't going to catch McCarthy and, and Pelosi and Schumer and McConnell. Uh, everybody was safely secured in rooms, and you just had, uh, you know, uh, air conditioned uh, installers like taking selfies in the statuary hall and like and then you had you know then you had violence uh, break out and it was clear at that point that it wasn't going to work so that that's why I think that the fact that he finally did tell them to stand down isn't exonerating of whether he wanted this to happen yeah well and for the sake of YouTube we can say the election was not stolen um, and even not. Attorney General yeah. Bill Barr um, in his deposition referred to claims that it was as BS um, I think you can sort of have a, a conversation about different uh, dark money that went into the election and, and all of that but no what Donald Trump was claiming right. is it is simply was not true and that to me has always been the the problem here it's that i remember thinking at the time if i thought somebody was stealing an election out from under my nose and right. everybody i trust was telling me you know because like what donald trump did was say rightfully every single authority is wrong and that's true it's absolutely true so when you destroy trust in the other authorities and people put their trust in you and you're saying that an election is being stolen from under your nose in the halls of a building right down the street you can understand right. why people who ha have been disenfranchised would feel that urge um, to do something about it it's it's not right um, but you can sort of start seeing mm -hmm. where it comes from but that's why i think actually what cheney's talking about there gets to how i dramatically or, or how unplanned all of this was like everyone was caught off guard by this Democrats were caught off guard by this Trump was caught off guard by this if you're looking at the internal communications that the January 6th committee text messages um, etc their subpoena power has been so wildly overused but all of the things that have come out have shown from my perspective that everybody was completely caught off guard and recognized um, and even Trump saying well maybe they have the right idea it's just him being flippant in the moment and there's no defense obviously for saying anybody should hang the vice president but you can see how they're just like reacting um, and I don't think there's I guess what I don't understand is how there would be a conspiracy or Trump in Trump's mind that he could foment unrest, physical violence, and everything by telling people to be peaceful and to assemble peacefully. I just, I, that disconnect for me is really hard to square. Well, he, I mean, he, he knows what his supporters understand when he says you need, you need to show strength. You know, if you don't fight today, we'll, we'll lose this forever. Uh, the, a key question to me, and it sounds like the committee is going to try to uh, get into this, is... Who in Trump's circle was in communication with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? Because as, as the committee showed last night, they were kind of instrumental in the breach of the Capitol. And is there any connection between a lack of security and, the, and those connections? Because if, if there is, then you're like, okay, this, this clearly was some type of coordinated thing. Because like, if you have enough people in a crowd that is 
that, that, are, that are pushed, that are kind of organized, 200, 300 Proud Boys or whatever, that's enough to kind of change the tenor of a, of a crowd. And if you stepped back and you saw this in another country, if you had a, a, a leader saying that the election was stolen, having a big rally of all of his supporters with his most extreme kind of paramilitary forces there, this is because that's what we would refer to them in, if they were in other countries, and then they, those paramilitary forces lead a mob to storm the Capitol, there wouldn't, nobody would be saying, well, can we really call this an insurrection? We'd be like, one more, one more coup attempt in this banana republic of another country. When, but when it happens here, we're like, hmm, maybe these are people who are acting completely independently, and Trump didn't know this was going to happen. I think part of it is that people, I think, even with the light security that was there that day, I think a lot of people assumed that the Capitol was impenetrable. Yes, that's 100 percent true. Yeah. People were shocked that they were getting in. And that's another frustrating thing. The, the, the footage was used, that was used last night was a couple of minutes. Um, but they, we know they have tens of thousands of hours of video footage. And this is the huge point to me. It's that they purged the committee. Like Nancy Pelosi wouldn't let people who were pro-Trump voices on the committee. OK, fine. Uh, I think that's really wrong. But, but it's didn't weird. McCarthy do the same thing, like wouldn't let like wouldn't participate in it or something? Well, so Jim Banks and I think Jim Jordan were appointed and Pelosi rejected. Oh, that's right. With, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, Kinzinger. But the point is like, there, there. I'm really curious. And January 6th to me, I actually think I'm, I'm happy to have investigations about January 6th, um, even though I think this is cynical and a distraction because it was a stunning security failure, yeah. then I want to know, like, there were people who were actually just being let in. And maybe that was part of a crowd control strategy, right? Like, if you let people in, they're not going to try to bust down the doors. Right. But there's still so much we don't know about the security situation, and they're not getting to the bottom of it. And speaking of Banana Republic coups, um, you know, this is just keeping all of that uh, dissenting information out of this, which is exactly what they're going to do, is just completely unhelpful. And we know because the New York Times reported Democrats who hired the former president of ABC News to literally mm -hmm. produce this um, are using this as part of a midterm strategy. Gas prices are just like a penny shy of being $5 a gallon. Um, consumer prices are up. This is like it, it, we're possibly heading towards a recession. It's a, Everything's in a really bad shape. And we basically know what Donald Trump said on January 6th. We know what he said. We know what he did. It was wrong at the time. It continues to be wrong now. Having a show trial in primetime throughout the summer, well, you may uncover a couple more interesting details about it. And you, you may you know, engross the country in some sort of true crime narrative. Um, and some of the stuff reasonably is of interest, because there was a security failure on January 6th. We know what Donald Trump said. I, I guess I just mm -hmm. don't see that if there's any, I don't understand what fundamentally new uh, information that is as important as Democrats are spending so much of their time on right now could justify it. I think, and, and I, I kind of have a foot in both camps here. I think that there is some cynicism to it. I think that it is an attempt by Democrats to distract from some of the, you know, some of the, the more material problems that people mm -hmm. are facing. On the other hand, I also do think it is a, an extremely serious issue. And I think it's a far more serious issue than, say, like Tucker Carlson was talking last night, saying it was a, it was, it was a kind of a, what is it, a, mo a modest mob riot or something. We can actually yeah, we have funny. Tucker. We can p put his uh, clip up here. 
You know, it tells you a lot about the priorities of our ruling class that the rest of us are getting yet another lecture about January 6th tonight from our moral inferiors, no less. An outbreak of mob violence, a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards that took place more than a year and a half ago, but they've never stopped talking about it. In the meantime, in the 18 months since January 6th, gas prices have doubled. Drug ODs have reached their highest point ever. The U.S. economy is now careening toward a devastating recession at best. And scariest and least noted of all, this country has never in its history been closer to a nuclear war. Yet the other networks cannot be bothered to cover any of that tonight. Instead, they've interrupted their regularly scheduled programming to bring you yet another extended primetime harangue from Nancy Pelosi and Liz Cheney about Donald Trump and QAnon. The whole thing is insulting. In fact, it's deranged, and we're not playing along. This is the only hour on an American news channel that will not be carrying their propaganda live. Okay, so he he said that part that you mentioned, forgettably minor. Yeah, forgettably like minor riot or something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I just think, yeah. do not think that's accurate, even though I think directionally, there's a really important point to be made that this entire show trial is going to suck us into a really unhelpful cycle of taking what feels like a scene from a Banana Republic, as you say, and fighting it with a Banana Republic trial where they're arresting a gubernatorial candidate in Michigan a year and a half later for a misdemeanor on the day that they're starting their stupid little hearing. Like, it just, to me, it's you're, you're trying to have the moral high ground and you're waxing sanctimonious about the unwashed masses um, and, you know, Everyone can say there's very few people that agree it was beating cops um, is an, an appropriate thing to do. But at the same time, it's also not appropriate to come up with this committee that has no dissenting voices, has wildly overreached their subpoena power. Like, speaking of breaking norms, what they're doing with their subpoena power is breaking norms. What they're doing with the FBI is breaking norms. So I guess I just find this entire cycle to be really frustrating and depressing. Yeah, I, w I would have rather had the Department of Justice um, in investigating this and actually, well, I mean, which, which they are, they're, pros they're prosecuting some proud boys and maybe some oath keepers. But, you know, some of the people who are in, involved in this to say that, no, the peaceful transfer of power has been something that the, you know, American experiment has uh, kind of brought onto the face mm. of the earth mm. and, and brought it on in real fits and starts. Like 1800 was the first, they called it the revolution of 1800 because that was the first actual transfer of power because Washington's party lost to Jefferson's party and Washington's party was like, we don't actually want to have Jefferson in office. Like, this is, this is terrible. This is wrong. We don't want that. He doesn't deserve it. And they, they actually tried to maneuver to make Burr the president because they thought Burr was this, like, cipher that they could then you know, kind of bribe and have be, be their guy. And it went something like 30-some rounds of votes mm. in the House of Representatives. And, and finally, uh, Hamilton, weirdly, was the one who was like, no, I hate Jefferson, but, like, he won. Right. Like put him in there. But you, you but you kept continued to have 18, what, 24 with the 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 the, the, the uh, corrupt bargain, 18, what, 76, where they, they trade the presidency for reconstruction, 1960, where Democrats steal it from Republicans, 2000 Republicans steal it from Democrats. So it has never been just somebody just rules that this is the winner and and it just and it just happens. However, culturally we have accepted that we're not going to use violence 
around yeah. elections. Absolutely. That we're going to do this nonviolently. We're going to do this peacefully. And it seems like a huge swath of the Republican Party is is not necessarily supportive of that idea anymore, that they are convinced that they cannot lose. The only way they can lose is if Democrats cheat. Therefore, if they lose, they have to take any means necessary to save their country. Well, I just don't agree with the idea that there's evidence a huge swath of the Republican Party supports that. And I think it's true because, I mean, actually January 6th is a great illustration of the evidence against that because there were tens of thousands of people there and the people who were actually committing violence were like a, it was a drop in the in bucket the compared to the actual, yeah, the, the actual crowd there. And, and that was, by, like, that was the Trump base, um, not just like your average Republican right. voter, your suburban soccer mom. Like, those are the hard Trump base, and even among them, it was like you, like you were saying, like probably a couple of hundred. I hope that's true, I, and and maybe it's paranoia on the on the center left, where they keep saying that that was a dry run, that now they're putting in place these secretaries of state and these other uh, uh, professionals who are going to make sure that this doesn't fail the ne- next time around. I hope that's I hope that's just paranoia on the part of the center left, and that and that. You know, there are enough elements of the right that they can suppress that kind of tendency. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we can all hope that. It's, yeah. <laughs> we'll, hopefully we'll live long enough to find out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See if 2024 <laughs> is a close one. Let's see. All right. Well, we will continue following this story and we'll tell you what's on our radars next. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, the most feminist statement made during this election cycle so far, I think probably came from Blake Masters, who argued in a campaign ad last year that Americans should be able to raise a family on one income. Back then, Ryan and I asked the Arizona Republican hopeful about that point. This was last July after some feminists got upset about it. Here's the clip. If your dad worked at the Ford auto plant in the 1950s, uh, that, that single median wage was enough to support a family. You'd buy a house, you could have a car, you could take a vacation. Um, we used to be able to do that. Something broke very badly in the last few decades. Now people have to work two jobs, um, maybe even three or four, just to run harder to stay in the same place. Uh, you know, we've seen downward effect well, pressure on wages that have basically kept them flat since the early 70s. Meanwhile, the costs, the stuff that everybody needs to buy, healthcare, education, housing, that stuff just keeps rising. Uh, it doesn't work. and I think it's just commonsensical to point it out. And then when the Democrats want to say that's sexist, you got to wonder what are they really what are they really saying? So I thought back to Masters ad this week when Sheryl Sandberg announced her soon-to-be departure from Meta. CNN called it, quote, the death knell for Lean In, which, of course, is the name of the hugely popular bestseller Sandberg wrote back in 2013. The book received some well-placed anti-corporate critiques from the feminist left at the time of its release, Sure. But the media establishment lavished Sandberg with praise. I was you know, sort of trying to remember how lavish that praise was. I briefly dug into the archive and the balance of that coverage was clearly in Sandberg's favor and hilariously so in some cases. The headlines are really funny if you go back and Google them. But in retrospect, this is embarrassing for a lot of reasons. Sandberg was using identity politics to dangle a shiny object in front of gullible journalists and corporatists who'd rather talk about, quote, banning bossy than Facebook's fundamentally anti-human, addictive, destructive business model. She was actively pushing and profiting off of the destruction of social capital and young minds at the time. 
Now, of course, she also was articulating a vision of equality that resonated with the educated workaholics in media, but insulted the rest of the country. So is the girl boss really dead, though? My colleague Madeline Osborne argued this week that, could, that COVID really was the nail in the coffin for the girl, the girl boss. Madeline pointed out that almost 2 million women, 2 million women, have left the labor force since February 2020. That marks a 33-year record low. She also pointed out that it's possible remote work contributed to the first increase in the American birth rate in years. Madeline quotes Lyman Stone, who noted for the Institute for Family Studies last week that, quote, high satisfaction with family life among remote workers suggests that the positive associations of remote work with marriage and fertility probably are not spurious. These women are happier with their family lives. Taken together, these results do point to one possible explanation for the rapid rebound in births, expanded remote work. Check out this data from Gallup as well. Women with young children prefer to be homemakers. That sounds icky to a lot of women conditioned by our highly industrialized, globalized world to see themselves as widgets. Major corporations will freeze women's eggs for them. They'll cover the cost of that. That is not respect. It's dehumanizing. It's treating you as a cog in their machine. Working mothers are statistically inefficient. Yes, all the media coverage and girl boss nonsense is partially a cope for women who want to justify missing some reasonable personal milestones because of professional priorities. Sure. But it's also rooted in modern capitalism's effort to mold us into the most efficient cogs possible. So why does all the rhetoric of 2013 look even worse now? Sandberg, having stayed with a company that pretty much pissed everyone off in the years since Lean In hit bookshelves, didn't exactly receive a warm send-off this week, except, of course, from Mark Zuckerberg. This, I think, is partially good news. It's bad news in the sense that we live in a much more cynical world, but good news in the sense that our cynicism is entirely warranted. I would be concerned if we weren't appropriately cynical right now. The Trump era really tore the curtain back on our political and cultural establishments, and then COVID came along, then the unrest of 2020, and nobody is buying what they're selling anymore. So living in a highly industrialized, highly globalized world has pushed people to move away from their families, to become transients in new communities they don't buy property in and then bounce around where work takes them to adopt standards of success that involve competing on a global scale as an individual. I think we know better now than to let Sheryl Sandberg set the standards for our lives. Ryan Blake Masters is interesting because, of course, he's worked for Peter Thiel. He wrote Zero to One with Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel has had heavy involvement with Facebook for years. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like maybe there, even in Silicon Valley, or maybe especially in Silicon Valley, where they don't, we know, let their own children use a lot of the technology they develop that other people who can't pay for as much childcare and all of that stuff um, do you know, heavily use with their own children. Does it feel to you as though there's a sort of crack in the foundation that felt like a pillar in the Obama era? Like Sheryl Sandberg has a new book out. Oh, great. Let's get her on The View and say what a girl boss she is. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple different things going on. And, and one, and I think you can separate them out. And, and in fact, one way to separate them out is to take Blake Masters out of the, the equation mm -hmm. and put Elizabeth Warren in there instead. Elizabeth Warren wrote a best-selling book. I think more than a decade ago, mm -hmm. uh, with her with her daughter, uh, called the two income trap, mm -hmm. and it it flows 
out of her politics. Uh, it, this, she has not kind of evolved into a different type of politician since she wrote that, or she doesn't have a different analysis of the, of the American economy as she did then. To an income trap basically said, and I imagine you're familiar with this book. Yeah. It, it was saying that corporate, corporate America uh, and through the kind of the neoliberal power structure that was uh, developing in the 1970s is, is couching or smuggling in wage declines and the, and the breaking up of unions and of the ability of a middle-class family to live a decent life. They're smuggling that in with the rhetoric of feminism and saying, isn't it wonderful that everybody gets to go to the workforce now? And she was saying that a middle-class family all of a sudden was, had to have two incomes mm -hmm. yes. uh, rather, rather than one in order to have the same standard of living that they had 20 years ago. And when you put it that way, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't actually sound like a good deal mm -hmm. because work sucks. Now, yeah. being kept out of the workforce because of your gender also sucks. And so they were, they're playing those two tensions off of each other. And so I think in order to separate these things out and to do it in a progressive way, you have to pull gender out of it and say that whoever wants to be the breadwinner should have the same social uh, kind of pressures and freedoms to be that breadwinner, but there should be enough worker power that you don't require both people to be working. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. And also all. plenty of these relationships are now two women or two men. So the interesting thing about that is the Gallup data that showed a, it's, it's, a, it's actually a fairly small chunk of women with children under the age of 18 who say their preference is to work full time. So on paper, under 18? under 18, children under 18, yeah, who say that. This is from 2014 and 2015. Possible numbers have changed since then, but this is relatively steady over time. There are some changes. You can actually see it on the uh, graph there. Um, it, does, it does occasionally go up and down in, in interesting ways, but over time, it's relatively steady. Um, and and so that, to me, it's where, like, on paper, right. absolutely very important to, you know, say whoever wants to be the breadwinner, you should be able to do this on one income, agree. That said, I, I think Sheryl Sandberg, lean in became more of a demand to women and less of a mantra, less of a suggestion. It felt like a demand. Um, and I think the way, because that resonates with so many women in media, the way we have this conversation nationally is so stacked um, for very highly educated women um, who are, you know, have, have made an intentional decision to push family off or whatever, and just have different priorities than the majority of women. And so I just think the, the messaging for women um, I mean, those are those two numbers are huge that we have the first increase in the birth rate, small as it is, and a record number of women dropping out of the workplace uh, workforce in a way that actually coincides with their preferences. So like if you look at just that record number dropping out in a vacuum, it might sound like bad news. But when you see that most women prefer not to work full time if they have a child under 18, maybe it's good news. But I think key context for that that number that you're talking about there is that most of the workers that you're talking about, most of the women workers you're talking about, are not executives of Facebook who have, yeah. who have flexible um, and enjoyable jobs yes. where you can kind of ex express your intellectual curiosity and, and also express your dominance over thousands of employees and over the entire world. Like, if the question was, do you want that kind of job or do you want to be at home with the kids, I think a majority of people would be like, I want that job. The job sounds great. <laughs> the Facebook job? The Facebook job. A lot of these... Uh, sounds you know, well, miserable. Yes, but also it's extremely well-paid. 
and and compensated both with with you know money, power, all the all of the things that people want. Like, and so the majority of jobs though are terrible, and the people have very few rights and and little power in the in the workplace. And so if you ask somebody who has a crap job, uh, or a BS job, as the as the, that great book talked about then they're going to say, no, I don't want this job. This job's, I do this job because I have to. And so if, if, if you can have a revolution in the workforce where there's a more democratic workplace, a place that people actually enjoy going to rather than feel alienated going to, uh, then you might see that number change. But if the alternative is you know, oppression and alienation in the workplace versus not, people are like, okay, I'll take the not on that side. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just, before we wrap, think there's a disconnect between um, women who, for nothing would compare for them, no job could ever compare to the joy of being with their child as they grow up and teaching them and taking them, you know, through that. And so, but I why guess- is it, But why gendered? Like, the same is true for men. Well, because like, I, I think it starts with, like, breastfeeding. It starts with the physical connection between women and their babies. And there's all kinds of social science about how important the physical relationship between mothers. I agree the same is true of fathers, but women have like physical demands that men don't in those situations. So I, I think it, it goes directly to that. And there are a lot of women who have those miserable jobs, um, more miserable than Sheryl Sandberg's that uh, can't breastfeed. They go back to work two weeks after having a baby, sometimes way less than that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, I think. Yes, life sucks. <laughs> Happy Friday from Ryan Grimm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm missing family day at uh, kindergarten this morning. So. The life of a working father. There you go. That's a problem with these. Uh, journalism is great because it's so flexible. Yeah. Except for TV journalism or whatever this is. It's, like, <laughs> it's not flexible. And you're going to have to. The show's on at a certain time. Right. And then yeah. you have to show up with makeup. Yeah. So you got to show up when you got to show up. I had to explain that to him. It sucked. Yeah. Well, Ryan, I'm looking forward to what's on your radar next. Ryan, what's on your radar? So we're going to talk later on today's show with the American Prospects, Dave Dayen, about the Biden administration's recent capitulation to a lobby group that calls itself the Solar Energy Industries Association, but doesn't like to mention that several of the major companies that make up the coalition are based in western China or do most of their solar manufacturing there. Now, the short story is Biden just straight up suspending the law for two years, the trade law for two years. Now, we'll get to that later. But first, I wanted to highlight what can now fairly be called a pattern with the Biden administration. Every chance this White House has been given to choose between American solar manufacturing with American workers on the one side and the Chinese-dominated supplier on the other side, he has sided with the Chinese firms over the American ones. And the current system is set up to push him in that direction. Here's the catch-22. Because there is a close to zero solar manufacturing base in the United States, there's obviously no lobby group to represent them. Without a lobby group, you don't get heard in Washington. What we do have are solar installers, both roof, rooftop and industrial, and they source their solar products from Southeast Asian companies, which in turn source their products from China particularly Western China, where forced labor is common and where industry is subsidized with cheap coal. Now, I recently interviewed trade policy expert Lori Wallach on my podcast, Deconstructed, and she lays out how all this works in much more detail. But suffice it to say, the main question is whether the products are truly coming from Southeast Asia or whether China is just using those countries to circumvent American trade laws. 
So in this latest fight, the companies benefiting from the circumvention had a huge lobby in Washington, but the public, which wants a future American solar manufacturing base, had no lobby because that's all still way in the future, so the Chinese companies won. But like I said, that wasn't the first time. So on February 1st, 2022, Biden broke from Trump-era tariffs that had been slapped on what are known as bifacial solar panels. He also increased the duty-free limit for crystalline silicon solar cells from 2.5 gigawatts up to 5, another win for the installation industry as it made Chinese products cheaper. Another case involved a domestic industry group calling itself American Solar Manufacturers Against Chinese Circumvention, or ASMAC, which is a pretty solid acronym. You have to give them that. Now, last August, they petitioned to Commerce to launch anti-circumvention inquiries into solar imports from Southeast Asia. The companies filed anonymously, not wanting to draw the wrath of more powerful players in the industry. The SEIA, which is that coalition that includes Chinese companies who are using American companies as cover, they argued to Commerce that the American companies shouldn't be able to stay anonymous. So again, the Biden administration sided against the American solar companies and sided with SEIA there. So only one company refiled and the rest ran away scared. So Biden here is playing short-term politics at a long-term cost, and it's not even clear there will be much short-term upside. Now, the reason so many solar projects are stalled is that China is breaking contracts and selling to Europe instead because Europe is buying every green energy product in sight to counteract their Russian fuel dependence. Now, this executive order won't change that. The best that can be said for it is it might prevent some layoffs in the solar, in solar installation industry, which is obviously important. But what it also does is stave off the creation of green energy independence. So I played a portion of this following clip recently, but as a reminder, you know who understands all of this? West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Here he is at Davos. The North American continent has the ability to be the energy juggernaut of the world. If we have Canada, United States, and Mexico, with the amount of critical minerals that we have deposits in those three countries on one continent, working together seamlessly, we will absolutely reduce our dependency on Asia, on China right now, who does 80% of the processing, has a total control, almost a monopoly, if you will, on the critical elements that we need. We can't move into electric vehicle and being dependent on foreign supply chains. So we're heading into a world where globalization is being reversed. Things are coming home, are coming back onshore. But China isn't playing fair when it comes to manufacturing, and we have nobody to blame but ourselves. America doesn't like to do industrial policy, but it's impossible to compete in a deglobalizing environment without doing industrial policy. Our solar manufacturing industry needs inter industrial policy behind it to effectively compete, or we can just live at the whim of China. And to me, this is so important because if we're no longer in a globalized world that's kind of run by Wall Street and the Fed, but actually we're, go we're pulling things back on shore, then countries have to think through what industries they're bringing back on shore and how they're going to actually kind of support those. For instance, if you're going to do the manufacturing here in the United States, you need a, you need a plant. But it's going to if, in order to build a billion-dollar plant, it's going to take 20-plus years for that to pay off. And there's basically no companies that are going to want to do that. And so what China does and what other countries that have industrial policy do is they say, you know what, the public is going to build this plant. We're going to build it, and here's where we're going to build it, because this is the best, the best place to do it. And then we're going to lease it 
to private companies mm -hmm. so that you only have to take a one-year risk yeah. on this thing. But we just aren't set up to do that. Well, because people can profit when we don't do that. That's right. exactly the case. And this is like you said here, you cannot compete in a global uh, business environment if you don't have industrial policy. And I think that's what a lot of people on the right missed for so long. Because you know what? We do have an industrial policy right now, and it benefits uh, cronies. Like it's, it's an industrial policy that doesn't benefit American industry. De-industrial policy. It's a right. de-industrial policy, right. And you can't put the globalization genie back in the bottle and that's exactly why it's important to recognize some organization of the economy is going to happen because you cannot, without some sense of organization, you cannot compete with the Chinese. And if you want to outsource not just solar technology, but masks, PPE, prescription drugs, if you, if you think that we can have a secure global supply chain in that situation, be my guest. Fine. You try to work that out. We've already seen the experiment utterly fail. So the alternative is to figure out how the government can incentivize competition domestically um, that is in and of itself a competition globally. That bring right. And so you, you have to be able to do that. And I, the, I think this is such a fantastic and important point um, because the organization that exists now, um, which is sometimes defended by free marketers, is crony capitalism. Right. That's right. all it is. Right, because that, that's the system that we have. The powerful interests are able to work their way in Washington. And the advantage that China has over us right now is that they can have their central committee sit down and say, you know what, and then they did this 10 or 15 years ago or whatever it was, you know what, clean energy is going to be the, uh, is, is the future. We want to dominate that. Mm -hmm. How are we going to dominate that? Well, we're going to build a bunch of dirty coal plants in Western China. We're going to use a bunch of slave labor to produce the components that are going to then fuel the entire clean, quote, clean energy uh, revolution around the world. Rare if, earth minerals. Rare earth minerals. And if any country uh, tries to build their own manufacturing base around this, we're going to uh, you know, bribe or you know, however we're going to manipulate their you know, they, they, so they legally do it in the United States. They can, you know, do it extra legally in some other places. And we're going to undercut the, the you know, we're going to dump a whole bunch of cheap stuff on their market so it puts their companies out of business. And as a last resort, we're just going to stop. We're going to boycott them. And mm -hmm. so that's what they're doing in the United States now. It's like, you know what? We're not sending you any of our stuff anymore. Yeah. So how do you like that? Now all of your plans that you had to build this, you know, giant Indiana solar farm, uh, you know, that's on pause. And then you have politicians saying, well, OK, just cave. Yeah. And it might be the short term thing to do. But long term, it's it's in their interest. And then we're just dependent on them. Well, yeah, if you want to compete with uh, countries that use literal slave labor um, organized right. by the government to keep prices low, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. I'm going to be able to do that. Yeah. No, that's yeah. It's just a stupid experiment. And it's wildly yeah. unhealthy. And, and Dave Dan's done some great reporting on this for the prospect. We're going to have him on later to talk a little bit more about this, because this is one of the most important issues of the, the, the global economy going forward. Absolutely. No question about it. And we'll have more rising up next. Next, we're going to talk to Igor Kotkin about the uh, war in Ukraine. Stick around. All right, we're joined now uh, from Moscow by a uh, socialist writer and friend of the show, Yegor Kotkin. Uh, Yegor, welcome to Rising. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Emily. 
And and so Jaeger, without uh, without getting without running you afoul of any uh, any Russian laws around uh, patriotism or whatever they are now, I think it's uh, to set the context for this conversation. I think it's fair to say that you have long been a a skeptic of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and also quite skeptical of the his decision to launch this war. And I think that's important context for this uh, conversation. We wanted to have you on both to talk about uh, what's going on in uh, Donbass now, but also about potential resolutions of this conflict. And so to start, you know, you recently tweeted this. You said, you know, actually, in retrospect, uh, Putin already made impossible resolution of the conflict with Ukraine without territorial concessions by one side or the other. Way back in 2014, accepting Crimea as a part of Russia, something that was not accepted either by Ukraine nor by the world. And so this so in other words, when Putin annexed Crimea, he set up a situation whereby any resolution to this conflict is assumed by both sides to leave that status quo. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's going to keep Crimea. Nobody really seriously believes that he's going to give back Crimea, which means territorial concessions are going to have to be made to end this conflict. So what, what do you think the implications of this are? Well, there are two kinds of implications, immediate ones uh, with regard to arm, uh, arm help uh, to Ukraine from the West, because there is a condition, and I don't know how formal it is, but it was uh, pronounced that uh, arms that delivered to Ukraine should not strike Russian territory. Uh, whereas uh, at the same time, Ukra Ukrainian side uh, often mentions that uh, liberation of the territory of Ukraine uh, in includes uh, not only Donbas region, but uh, Crimea. And uh, as they see Crimea, the, their territory, and they might uh, see it's a legitimate target uh, for the weapons, including Western weapons, uh, for, the, for Russia, it will be almost certainly, I mean, certainly it will be an attack on Russian territory and Russian citizens because uh, Crimea is uh, constitutionally a part of Russia for, for eight years. And uh, despite the fact that uh, it was certainly an annexation that will happen in Crimea, it was uh, nevertheless, it was a peaceful one. Whereas taking it back to Ukraine uh, it means uh, war and uh, victims from the uh, uh, site of population of Crimea. That's a short-term implications, and it uh, must be addressed by uh, the Western countries that help Ukraine with weapons, uh, what, what they position about Crimea. Because again, if they rightfully, in my view, uh, think that uh, this weapon should not be uh, used for transferring war on the territory of Russia, it includes Crimea, Crimean question as well, and that uh, puts West in the hard position to make uh, a decision about Crimea de facto and de, de jure, at, at least de facto, because for eight years it was ignored, but right now the decision has to be made, or otherwise there is a real risk that uh, the war will be transferred and I think on this territory. What's important about your point is that you're saying it's already been made impossible, um, which which renders a lot of this conflict uh, or puts it in a very different light. And I, I'm curious what you think, if you think Western leaders understand the uh, the impossibility, basically that that argument that you're making. Do you think that? Western leaders from President Biden, uh, do you think President Zelensky, do you think people like truly understand the dynamic that you describe in that tweet? 
I think the Western leaders uh, have uh, the big problem of denial of history. I mean, this uh, Brexit Fukuyama notion of oh, 30 years ago it, uh, about end of history, it, it didn't mean that history actually ended, but it uh, manifests the main line of thinking of the ruling elite of the West for this uh, three decades, four decades. They would like the history to end, and they refuse to think historically, and they refuse to make. Uh, therefore, they refuse to decide the side of the history they want to be in, and this um, uh, leads to kind of schizophrenic politics, actually. And the Ukrainians being frustrated by this schizophrenic uh, politics because they see. On the one side, uh, wish to help Ukraine. On the other side, they wish uh, they see a hesitance to help Ukraine. And Russia sees this too and uh, uses for its strategic purposes. Uh, and uh, the, though I don't agree with Putin's strategic pur purposes uh, in, any, in any kind, I must admit that uh, he has strategy, whereas West refuses to have strategy. And it's uh, the big problem that current. Uh, generation of Western leaders uh, have no historic uh, uh, approach at all. And, they try, they uh, yeah. try to manage problems that uh, can be managed without a historical world. Right. Can you give us a little bit of sense of you know, how the Russian economy is doing from the perspective of the Russian public? And also, what, how has the Russian public's attitude toward Putin's war evolved since, since February? Well, uh, I'd say we see kind of a normalization of the situation because uh, news is becoming redundant, uh, uh, kind of, well, they repeat itself. So people being more uh, concerned by the immediate problems. Uh, prices are going up, that's undeniable. But uh, all of these uh, economic sanctions, they uh, couldn't have, uh, they don't have immediate effect. They have a long-term effect. So. Right now, uh, I can't say that people, uh, I mean, on the short term, it most, mostly agitate people against uh, the West and uh, people are being, actually it moves the focus of attention of people of, from what happens, Russian people, from what happens in Ukraine, from the framework of Russian-Ukraine conflict to the framework Russian-Western conflict because all these companies withdraw from Russia and it might not have an immediate economic effect, but it has a uh, uh, grandiose propaganda, propagandist effect. The, yeah, the, no, go ahead, go ahead. Basically, uh, people uh, rally behind uh, the flag uh, the same way uh, like it happened uh, in America after 9-11. Yeah, and that I think also, do you, th do you see Putin's perspective on people in Russia's support for the war? How, is, how, how do you think he views the public, I mean, because we know just implicit in the idea that there's a massive propaganda campaign to justify the war. We know that Putin values you know, public support. But if that starts to crack, how do you think that impacts um, Putin's decision making? Well, uh, it's hard to imagine how, how it will crack in the short term, because first of all, it, been, it has been it uh, been re it's been re reinforced from the outside. I mean, right now uh, the Western blockade is not as much helping Ukraine uh, as much uh, helping uh, Putin, uh, creating like a outside skeleton, exoskeleton for his uh, regime because uh, they 
their actions uh, basically show people that there is no alternative uh, for Putin and Putin's regime because uh, West, as uh, it, uh, manifest in their actions, is uh, determined to crush Russia. And it doesn't matter uh, what the real intent, in, intent of the West is. I believe there is no clear intent. That's my main critique of the uh, absence of the strategic intent or understanding on the part of the West. But from the inside of Russia, it seems like uh, Putin was right all the time. And uh, without Putin, Russia will be crushed by the, by the West. So uh, in that sense, uh, support for Putin being reinforced uh, by Western uh, blockade on the one hand. And on the other hand, I would I should say that this whole special operations, as a law requires me to say, wouldn't start ever if uh, Putin wouldn't successfully uh, took over control of the Russian state, Russian politics uh, for these 20 years. So mm -hmm. this is like, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a result these 20 right. years of him concentrating power in his hands. So right now it's kind of late uh, to uh, speak about a dissent from the populace of Russia because if, if, if it was possible, uh, the special operation wouldn't start. It started because the dissent uh, was made 20 years impossible. And uh, elite dissent is a different thing, but uh, because of the sanctions that uh, target to the elite as well, uh, it's also unlikely in the short time. Yeah, very always always interesting. Yegor, you're you're writing on Patreon now, is that right? Yegor Yegor yes. Kotkin. Yegor Kotkin, yes, on Patreon, and I'm going to write a new piece about the future Ukraine and Russia relations. Uh, where where should the historic uh, to put this historic perspective and to uh, work a back strategy from this, and uh, maybe I'll start my videos, my new videos on Patreon. So. Well, people, can, people can find your work there until Patreon decides to shut down in Russia or yeah. <laughs> then you have to move, move somewhere else, right? Uh, but, Yegor, thanks so much yes. for, for joining us. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Rising after this. So the Biden administration has punted a dispute within the solar industry by basically suspending American trade law for two years. We're going to dive into what happened here with executive editor at the American Prospect, David Dayan. He joins us now to expand on what happened. So you, you wrote about this recently. You've been covering it for a while. Kind of set, set, the, set the stage for us. What was this kind of circumvention investigation that was suspended by the Biden administration? Right. So you have to go back to 2012 when the Obama administration put uh, anti-dumping duties on several Chinese companies for selling solar panels into the global market uh, well below cost. And uh, almost immediately after that happened, uh, solar imports from four Southeast Asian companies uh, spiked, went way up. Uh, uh, and and almost at the same rate as Chinese imports went down. So you don't have to be a genius to figure out what probably happened here is that there was a transshipment of these components and then something was done with them in the Southeast Asian companies and then it was moved on uh, into the United States. So uh, at any time, because of this anti-dumping order, any domestic solar company could, in, a, in what is sort of a quasi-legal process, initiate an investigation 
that the Commerce Department through the International uh, Trade Commission has to look into. And that's what happened. So uh, a company called Oxen Solar out in San Jose uh, put this forward, said, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're circumventing the, the duties by transshipping this stuff into these Southeast Asian countries. And, uh, and, and so the investigation for that is ongoing. And, and where do you expect it to go going forward uh, now, 2022? What can people expect from the investigation? So it's still ongoing, but uh, this week, the Biden administration, after a lot of criticism from a corporate lobby called the Solar Energy Industries Association, uh, as well as members of Congress who said this is destroying the domestic solar uh, installation industry in this country. Uh, so the Biden administration kind of made this compromise. And he said, okay, we're gonna do some things to try to boost domestic solar in the future, but for the next two years, whatever the commerce investigation turns up, we're not going to have any penalties. So uh, he essentially suspended those anti-dumping uh, uh, penalties on these particular Southeast Asian countries and the companies within them uh, for two years until June 2024. And so, Dave, it feels like this is a case of the, the U.S. trying to do industrial policy with one or maybe two hands tied behind its back. You could, you could see a situation where uh, the U.S. said, you know what, uh, there is a genuine problem in our solar installation industry. There are tens of thousands of workers in this field. If they can't get components, then they're going to be laid off. All of the, all of the training that was involved, all the recruiting that, that created this workforce will just evaporate. So there are you know, economic security and even national security reasons why we would, we would want to maintain this base of, of workers. So therefore, you know, we're going to subsidize this industry or we're going to do a PPP type thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they know how to pay people's uh, salaries and their, their paychecks, you know, while they're not working. We did that all throughout COVID. And you say, and while we're doing that, we're going to continue to investigate this circumvention. When we, when we finish this investigation, we're going to put the duties on and then the industry is, is, you know, back up and running and we're going to move back into this. But that would require a kind of a fantastically different government that we have it's that's a fantasy land view like it doesn't feel like is there any like how would let's say voters were like yes this is what we want we want to put a government into place that would do this how would they do that just become the defense industry right become the defense industry yeah well they're doing that to an extent right i yeah. mean one yeah. of the things in this order there was kind of a you know on the one hand on the other hand kind of executive order here so one of the things they're doing is invoking the Defense Production Act and mm -hmm. saying we're going to use that to uh, stimulate domestic production of solar panels, which sounds great. The problem is that there's no funding for domestic solar uh, within the DPA. The DPA has a has you have to create funding for it uh, because what you're doing is you're saying we're demanding that industry use its its ingenuity to, to to make more solar panels which is great but that need you need capital to do that i mean you you can do some things with dpa in terms of reallocating like if there's steel being produced you can say that steel goes to solar panels or that steel goes to wind turbines but the things like polysilicon aren't made in the united states you need capital to actually create that industry and there's about half a billion dollars in the budget 
in, in the DPA kind of uh, kitty uh, for that, which is just woefully inadequate. And it's competing with infant formula and all the other things that we've done DPAs on recently. So, uh, so that's kind of inadequate. Um, on, on the other hand, they've suspended trade law, essentially, as you said. Now, you know, not only is there an interest to keep jobs going in the domestic solar installation industry, but, you know, we have a climate crisis and, and the idea of, of rapidly expanding and, and moving to the green transition makes sense. Uh, the, the problem here is that you're, what you're really doing is eliminating the ability for any domestic company who feels like they're being uh, given a raw deal in, in global trade, the ability to, to, to dispute that in any way. I mean, as long as the, uh, the government in power says uh, this is a priority for us, they've now figured out a way, a very dubious way, and we can talk about that, but they've figured out a way to say we're we're just going to nullify that. But we we think that that you know cheap solar panels from China is more important, and we're just going to nullify that. And that doesn't just that isn't just bad for solar panels. That's bad for for domestic industry and industrial policy more generally because it it just makes it harder for smaller companies to compete. And what can you tell us about the lobbying interests that you mentioned earlier who are pushing big on this issue? Yeah, so you have this this trade group, the Solar Energy Industries Association. Uh, members of the trade group are the Chinese companies that are at issue in this case. Literally, the ones being investigated. The, the Commerce Department sent eight letters to eight companies who are operating in Southeast Asia, and seven of them have U.S. affiliates that are in the Solar Energy Industries Association. One of them was on the executive board, which sets policy. Uh, in 2019, I've been told they're still on the board. The Solar Energy Industries Association disputes that and says they, get, they fell off. It's a pay-to-play board. So, you, I mean, the board members are the ones who put the money toward the organization and, uh, and, and therefore get the set policy. Uh, every time there's uh, this kind of dispute around domestic solar, SIA uh, seems to take the side of uh, cheaper solar panels from abroad uh, rather than building domestic industry. And I mean, we've just been through a pandemic where we learned the dangers of centralizing production in one part of the world. And now we're prepared to substitute oil that comes from hostile rogue nations in some cases uh, for uh, solar panel components, 99% of which is made in uh, another hostile power in China. And, and the climate question is an interesting one. So let's say that your number one issue is, is climate. The fact that these Chinese companies are kind of boycotting, sell, sending panels over to the U.S. and sending them to Europe instead where they're getting a markup there shouldn't actually matter to you if you're a climate activist. It's, it's, still, a cli it's still a panel getting set up displacing fossil fuels. It doesn't matter where in the world that is happening. And in fact, if it then forces the Western Hemisphere, you know, Mexico, U.S., Canada, to develop a solar manufacturing capacity, then that then that actually is better for the climate because you're producing more. Like the U.S. outbidding and using its imperial power to like suck up all of the solar panels, isn't necessarily bringing us closer to the the climate transition. It'd be nice for us; we'll feel good about having more solar panels. But if it's at the expense of the rest of the world, and if it's being done. Uh, with you know, by burning cheap, dirty coal in Western China, 
you know, maybe there's some net benefit there in the long run uh, because the panels will run long enough. But, you know, it, it, it certainly isn't the kind of thing that's going to get us where we need to be. Hmm. Made some great points there. Uh, uh, number one, yes, most of this coal is made or most of the solar panel components are made in the Xinjiang region of China, not only with dirty coal, but with forced labor. Um, we have a bill. Uh, that came into law that was passed almost unanimously by Congress called the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act uh, that's supposed to ban any goods that originate from China in any fashion. So these solar panels are supposed to be uh, blocked at the border anyway, and we'll see what happens. That's supposed to go and come into place in the next couple of weeks. Um, the, the second point you made, which is really super important, that Europe, because of the war in Ukraine, is desperate for a new kind of energy source. And they have doubled their spot rates to buy these solar panels from these various countries. And so, yes, there isn't a net loss. The panel is being installed. And uh, climate is a big part of SIA's argument, saying that this is a disaster for the climate. It isn't. Their argument is really an, an America first argument. Their, their argument is saying that that we need the panels, not Europe. And, and, and this is a disaster for us specifically. We won't reach our climate goals is how they put it. And uh, but if the planet is reaching closer to those climate goals, then then what is the net loss? I, I agree with you. And if it spurs domestic production, all the better. Um, so, yeah, there are some, some arguments that are a little spurious that are being thrown around by everybody. Uh, but the larger point is that now we have this, this thing in place where, uh, for the next two years, uh, solar panels made with dirty coal, made with forced labor, uh, are going to be allowed entry into this country. Hmm. Dave, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Important story. We're going we're gonna to keep on this. All right. Thanks a lot. And we'll have more rising right after this. We spent the earlier part of this week uh, reporting down in northern Mexico and the Rio Grande Valley about the border crisis. And I know some people hesitate to use that word. It's rare that I agree with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, but he actually said this week that the situation, the challenges that America is facing at the southern border are, quote, beyond anything that anyone has seen before. The New York Post uh, reported on what a lot of people have reported on the start of another caravan. Now, caravans themselves, this is about an 11th thousand person caravan that is not it, that's sort of a drop in the bucket um, in terms of people that are attempting to cross the border and who are then getting um, some type of parole there's still title 42 in place but the situation um, is nothing short of a humanitarian crisis whether you think it's an economic crisis or a national crisis whatever it is it's absolutely a humanitarian crisis you can see in this footage that I took from a uh, a, a Catholic charity a Catholic shelter um, this was in Rain which is uh, sort of, it's just across the border from McAllen, Texas. So this is one of the places where um, the, the crisis is most pronounced, where there are the most crossing attempts. Just look at the conditions here. A lot of the people at this shelter and in Matamoros as well, uh, the cities both of Reynosa and Matamoros, are actually Haitians. They haven't lived in Haiti for many, many years. Um, I didn't talk to a single one of them as I was having these conversations with many migrants who had lived in Haiti recently, like within the last five years. Most 
most left in the years after that 2010 earthquake um, and are, are really living in, in sad and desperate conditions now after they left, in many cases, Chile or Brazil. Um, and it's this, this uh, gentleman on the screen uh, was from Honduras, I believe. They've risked everything. Uh, a lot of them don't meet the, the legal definition or the, the legal standards for an asylum claim, um, but they have horrible stories. They say in some cases their family members have been kidnapped, they have been kidnapped uh, by cartels, and uh, that's the interesting thing sort of about the caravan too. Um, it's that there's a, an economic infrastructure in Central America and in Me Mexico right now built around a, built around um, people who are traveling north to get mm -hmm. to the border. And it's basically cartels. And uh, cities like Reynosa and Matamoros are largely under control of cartels. So these are dangerous conditions for people who are desperate. They want to get into the United States. And because this is the big challenge, because some people are getting in on humanitarian parole, the news travels down through Central America. Some of it is is bad information, some of it is bad information actually willfully presented by the cartels to get more and more mm -hmm. people up there. They try to get more and more people to cross because it's business for them. You have to pay it's the cartels. It's a numbers cartels. game, right? It's a numbers yeah. game. You have to pay the cartels to cross, otherwise they will literally pull you out of the water. They will literally, right. they monitor the, the river so uh, fastidiously that there they There are other border patrol. Yeah, they, uh, at, absolutely they are on the other side. Um, and so they will literally pull you out of the water. Um, this is a huge money-making machine now for cartels, but people are so desperate for better lives that just the, the hope of getting into the United States is enough um, to take enormous risks. And it's all, sadly, it's all benefiting cartels. So how many people are at that, uh, that, that Catholic charity? They were, what was your guess of like how sprawling that campus was. Yeah, so they actually told us, I forget what it was, I'd, I would have to check my notes for the exact number, but uh, most of these places were way over capacity. Um, so these are shelters, like in some cases, we went to a Bible school, it's run by a pastor um, who's worked in Matamoros since like 2000. And he had to like convert his building into a shelter for a lot of Haitian migrants actually, um, because it's been such an influx. People have nowhere to stay. They're sleeping on the streets in some cases. There is a line, the, the shelter you just saw with the tents, you could not have fit another tent on mm -hmm. that roof. There was a line just to get into the shelter. And the shelter then can, you know, if, if you have money, you can hire a lawyer. Um, and to get money, how do you get money? I mean, you could try to work, you can have your family wire you money over mm -hmm. time, but it costs a lot of money to get a lawyer. And that's your really your only shot. Um, but those facilities are able to help you with that. So there's a line just to get into the shelter. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and you see it on the streets. So this is so Biden's in office right now. This is what you could call a Democratic approach to how to handle these migration flows. The Republican approach is build more walls and turn people away as as quickly as possible. Neither of those to me seem remotely responsive in any useful way to the crisis. So if we're in a world where we are deglobalizing, you know, where things are coming back on shore, and if you project the American population out over the mm -hmm. next couple of decades, you start to see a rapidly aging population. Yeah. And you, you, we have a labor shortage already. There's, no, there's no reason to think that that labor shortage is going to get much better over the next you know, decades as the population continues to age. So what would be the harm, just to, to talk in a, like an openly radical way, what would be the harm 
of telling those people, you know what, we, if you want to come in, you have to register. Uh, here, here is a work permit. Here, here is a path to eventually getting uh, citizenship. But you could say, let's say it's going to take you 10 or 20 years, whatever it is. Here are the conditions that you have to meet. You, you have to you follow the law. You have to take the different citizenship tests. But you can come into the country. Uh, to say, like, you know what, this is happening anyway, and in the process we have isn't actually stopping it. We can build as many walls as we want. It's not going to end this. Uh, so let's just, it, let's just figure this out and uh, allow people the freedom of movement around the world that, that in some ways feels like a fundamental human right. What, what, would, what would happen if you did that? Yeah, no, it's a, a good question because the border wall is a total distraction. It's basically just like, that's um, not to say there aren't some important reasons to have it, in, especially in particular parts. Um, but if you don't have a policy, an asylum policy and a, a legal policy that matches what you're doing with the wall, it's kind of off or not because people, most crossings come right through uh, the, they come right through the border itself. And so it's, it's all a total mess. You're right. Neither approach is working. And especially when you have Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, I think these are mixed messages that are not helpful to anybody. They're mixed messages, and they they go they go through. It's a line that runs through every administration in recent history, whether it's Republican or Democrat, not doing enough to communicate with people accurate information in Central America and in Mexico um, exactly what will happen if you come up to the border, what the policies are and what the policies aren't, because people have a lot of bad information, and that's what. Um, that's what convinces them to leave. And in some cases, they're pushed out. But the, the thing that concerns me um, it, about just sort of giving people work permits, and by the way, that's front of mind for people. I was talking to um, a, a family, and I'm, I'm forgetting exactly where they were from, actually. They, they were, I want to say they were in Durham, or they may have been Guatemalan, but they uh, were showing us their documents. And they had been let into the United States. So this was at a shelter on the other side of the mm-hmm. border. Um, they're showing us their documents and they were like, is there a work permit here? Can we work? And that's what they wanted to do. The problem though, is that I think it, it continues to cause more unrest in Central and South America. The more people you have fleeing, it, you have no incentives to repair those countries. Um, and, and that is an even sadder state of affairs. That's already um, a huge problem for the political violence. Um, you know, I talked to somebody who says, it's very hard to verify these stories, but I talked to a very um, upset woman who asked us to pray with her, actually. It was, it was a, quite a, a moving conversation about how she had, her daughter had been kidnapped um, by a gang in her home country. And they said, you have 24 hours, it was extortion to pay us X. Mm-hmm. Left, left the country. Um, and when people don't have that path um, out to, you know, to, to risk everything, to pay the cartels, to make the journey. Did they get the daughter? Uh, no, they left. Um, they left. This is a story, um, which is, I talked to another family who had been kidnapped actually in Reynosa uh, within the last couple of weeks. So the the incentives to, you know, repair, and it's not to say we didn't do anything to foment that unrest in the first place, um, they have to be there too, because that's humane. Did anything that you saw change any of your uh, views on the crisis? Yeah, um, I, and immigration policy generally. Yeah, I mean, it's there were two things that really stood out to me. Um, a combination of two things. One, it's that 
it's just for a chance, right? So like people are, are so desperate not just to get into the United States, but they're risking everything just for a chance to get into the United States, just to be uh, as close to the border as possible. Some people leave the shelters or don't even go into the shelters so that they can stay right at the border. We talked to a group of Haitians that was literally at the entrance to the border itself, because if something changes, that's why the Biden administration needs to be way clearer about this. They're right there um, and they'll be the first ones in. And a lot of them are suffering uh, you know, they don't have the proper medication. Um, they're in potentially violent situations. Um, the cartel is controlling these areas. So I think it's a it's it's quite interesting that, you know, these people don't necessarily think they're just the doors are going to fling open and be let in, but they're doing it just for the chance right. to, to live in the United States. Right. Well, thanks for the reporting. Yeah, well, and shout out to uh, my colleague, John Daniel Davidson, and a, a great journalist out of Mexico City, David Agren, um, who I was there with. Uh, definitely definitely a, a, a tragedy uh, unfolding um, just, just south of our border, and there's much more we can do. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that, and we will have more rising right after this. So consultants who specialize in what's known as union avoidance uh, are coming under scrutiny in a new piece by my colleague Lee Fong in The Intercept for their adoption of social justice language in pursuit of busting these unions. Lee Fong joins us now to talk about his new investigation. Lee, welcome to Rising. Thanks for having me. And so, so Lee, how, how, did you, uh, how did you first kind of st- stumble onto this new phenomenon that the uh, that the union avoidance industry, which has you know, long been brought in by corporations to warn employees away from unionizing, typically they would say, you know, you're going to get ripped off by union bosses, uh, you're, they're going to take uh, the dues money, you're going to have less freedom at the workplace, uh, you, if you're a great worker, won't be able to get the same kinds of raises, uh, you're going to have, basically they're arguing that your material life will actually be worse off as a result of joining this union. But now they're making different, some of these consultants are making different languages. Talk to us about that. Or talking, making different arguments in different language. I'm based in San Francisco. And over the last four years, we've seen kind of a worker rebellion. A lot of Silicon Valley firms have had their employees walk out of the job, start agitating for labor unions. And for the most part, uh, these union efforts have been sidelined or crushed um, and I've been watching this dynamic. In many cases, these Silicon Valley firms have been adopting the language, the symbols, some of the practices that are associated with the social justice movement, with uh, diversity and inclusion, inclusion initiatives. Uh, what they're telling workers is that if you're interested in diversity and social justice, you don't need to turn to a third party, a labor union. The corporation is already a social justice organization. They sponsor the Pride March. They will sponsor the Black or LGBT employee resource group. Um, you don't need to turn to one of these labor unions. Labor unions are associated with sexism or racism. They're kind of inverting uh, the traditional uh, model of, of, of social justice, saying that if you if you if you're interested in these movements, don't towards don't turn towards the labor movement. Turn towards corporate power. And just from watching this the last four years, it got me interested in the issue. Uh, I attended. Uh, several webinars and, and conventions for the labor uh, suppression, the union avoidance industry. Uh, went to a, other events and 
I just started doing research and, and, and talking to folks and realized this is a dynamic that's not just in Silicon Valley. It's really unfolding around the country, whether that's uh, what's happening at Starbucks, what's happening at Amazon, uh, it's happening at, at, at smaller companies uh, from coast to coast. You know, the union avoidance industry used to be much more cloak and dagger and, and actually violent. You know, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, it was comprised of Pinkertons and private guards with violent clashes on the on the picket line of intimidating workers uh, with weapons um, and, and, and those type of tactics. Now in the 21st century, the culture has changed. Uh, worker demands are different. Um, and corporations are simply adapting. They're seeing, hey, uh, you know, DEI or social justice rhetoric um, without a class component, without a material demand, um, doesn't harm our bottom line. We can, you know, add a kind of perfunctory DEI pa panel or some, you know, diversity in the boardroom or, or, or what have you. That doesn't cost us anything. And it actually provides a benefit to these corporations uh, because it sucks the energy away from a labor union that would mean higher wages, better benefits for workers. So it's it's a big win in terms of a reputation for corporations. It's a big win for um, sidelining the union movement. You, this is such a well-reported story. You have a couple of really good quotes here. Uh, this is from in the REI's chief diversity and social impact officer who said, REI doesn't think unionization is the right thing for the co-op or the employees. From, again, the chief diversity and social impact officer, um, Whole Foods anti-union seminars, they're, wor they're warned about, quote, old white guys in union leadership. And this is, I think, one of the most telling quotes in your story uh, from a professor at San Francisco State, John Logan, who says it's a brutal anti-union campaign, but also one that tries to appeal to the sort of progressive sensibilities of the kinds of people who work at Starbucks. And that's what I want to ask you about in, in this context, Lee, is that we have seen proportionately in, in union membership a growth in the proportion of union members who are in white collar unions, uh, whether that's media organizations or teachers or whatever. So how has this been affected by the shifting base of union membership in the United States? Well, just look at polls. Um, if you look across the country, if you're highly educated, if you have a, uh, an undergrad or graduate degree, you prioritize, you're more likely to prioritize issues around social justice, uh, racial justice, what have you. And corporations um, can see that. They say, okay, well, we've, if we've got to meet uh, the demands of this, um, this sector of the labor force of highly educated workers that are very interested in social justice issues, but they're also gravitating towards labor unions, how do we head this off? And uh, uh, bringing in union avoidance consultants who now remarket themselves, who rebrand themselves as diversity trainers. Um, I quoted one labor professor who called this kind of uh, a perfect psyops. <laughs> you know, uh, the diversity trainers are, are, are supposed to be very close to workers. They get them very vulnerable to talk about just things that are very personal in terms of identity, uh, of, you know, poten potential cases of uh, racial discrimination or identity discrimination or issues that have happened in the home or in the past or, you know, in, in terms of, of, of kind of their, their, their sense of self. Um, and they're getting valuable intelligence from workers. They're, they're really getting them into closed rooms and, 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 and talking to them in, in an intimate way. Uh, so this is kind of a perfect vein for corporations to connect with this new rising workforce that are drifting towards labor unions. I mean, whether it's in, in the media industry uh, graduate students at universities, even Starbucks, which, you know, might be associated with a low wage retail job, um, a, a high proportion of those workers 
um, are college educated. And so, uh, again, look at the polls. If you're college educated, you, you prioritize issues around social justice, racial justice and that type of thing. And you write in your piece, though, that it's not it's either backfiring or it's not working as well at at Starbucks. And I'm curious if you have a, a kind of sociological sense of why that is, because, as you say, a lot of those workers are college educated. But but the but the work itself is more man is more manual labor rather than a college educated worker who is, say, an engineer at Tinder, uh, you know, who, who might be trying to organize. Uh, so why do you think it is that the kind of the DEI effort kind of uh, kind of smuggled in as anti-union activity is effective for some of these office workers, but even if they are demographically similar, it's not as effective in a place like Starbucks. Well, it's just kind of, there are different types of jobs, you know. Uh, if you're a Google worker or an Amazon worker in their Seattle headquarters and you're making $300,000, $400,000, and you've got a, a whole range of, of benefits, um, wages and benefits and, 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 and your kind of hourly workday, uh, it, it's a different dynamic from Starbucks where folks are being put in, into a place where they're in, they're in locations that are understaffed. In many cases, they're dangerous. Um, you know, there are machines that break, uh, that, that harm workers. Uh, they have to deal with kind of angry or potentially violent customers. And so the needs of a union are, are much more transparent. For a lot of these kind of highly paid tech workers, um, the priority of, uh, of dignity at work, of having this kind of symbolic social just, justice gestures of, you know, sponsoring a, a gay pride parade or sponsoring um, an NGO that might represent some of these workers' values, uh, that might take a higher priority. Uh, for workers that are dealing with uh, incredibly low, in some cases, poverty wages, um, a traditional labor union that that really focuses on the meat and potatoes of wages and benefits might make more sense. So these uh, efforts to sideline the union using DEI or diversity, if you look at the Starbucks anti-union website, it's just littered with this rhetoric of social justice talking about, you know, you don't need to join a union. We're already such an inclusive workplace. Uh, we're, we're doing so much to hire uh, diverse workers. Uh, if you look at, even if you look into the media, uh, the person they recently Starbucks recently hired a chief diversity officer, and he's out in the media defending uh, the company against uh, the unionization tide. So you know the company's trying, but in that case, it's failing. But it's really just a mixed bag. In many cases, uh, these companies that are adopting, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, woke union busting, they're succeeding. So. You know, at Starbucks, it's not, but it depends. It depends where you're looking. Well, yeah. So Starbucks is a really good example. I remember a Jacobin article. It was a, a few months back, um, and I think this was in Kansas City, but it was a Starbucks store that was in the middle of the city. And because of Starbucks' new bathroom policy, the workers felt like um, they were being put in unsafe situations. The quote was they were being expected to act like, quote, untrained social workers. And it's so interesting to see in some ways also how the, again, for lack of a better word, woke ideology that some of these corporations have adopted, it's a smokescreen and they're weaponizing it to continue profiting in in different ways. But it also is, is contrary to the interests of working class people 
people in, in certain cases, first of all, who may disagree with their actions on a variety of political issues, but who also might feel like they're being put in danger by it because you know some policy puts them in a, in a bad situation. And so it's this amazingly vicious cycle of how weaponizing identity politics actually hurts people who are marginalized and further disenfranchises them and further makes it hard for them to uh, speak out. No, that's right. And, you know, for a lot of these DEI efforts, they're just low cost. You know, they bring in a consultant that rebrands a website. Uh, they create kind of phony employee resource groups. It's, they're basically just Facebook groups for, you know, again, like Asian or LGBT workers at, at, at a company. Uh, they offer maybe a mental health hotline at best. Um, but at the end of the day, there are very expensive upgrades that are needed at a lot of these companies that at companies like Dollar Tree or Starbucks, um, these are unsafe jobs. They really just need to hire more people, which would cost tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of, uh, if you look at the, the scale of, of these uh, these companies. And rather than do that, they think they can throw a little bit of money at um, symbolic gestures that are based on identity. Well, the, the article at The Intercept is entitled The Evolution of Union Busting, Breaking Unions with the Language of Diversity and Social Justice. Encourage everybody to check it out. Lee Fong, terrific reporting, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great, and we will have more rising right after this. Stick around. So the Washington Post has fired reporter Felicia Solnez after a multi-day scandal. That scandal we call it that that played out <laughs> on Twitter. It started with a. Dave, Dave Weigel uh, retweeting something offensive. Uh, Felicia Sumnes then highlighted that retweet in internal Slack. Uh, minutes later, she, quote, screen grabbed it and shared it with the world and said, how awful is this? Weigel wound up with a uh, mon month unpaid suspension. It spiraled from there. Somnes has been fired. Uh, why are we talking about this? Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted to do an anti-segment on this, but it's true. This does matter. I think it matters, though, from the perspective of that you have a, people like Felicia Somnes, who has been at The Washington Post for a really long time and I think has acted with similar. Uh, she was fired on the grounds of insubordination um, mm -hmm. and a couple of other things, like talking about her colleagues on Twitter, which is wildly inappropriate. But Taylor Lorenz does the same thing. Taylor Lorenz was just caught in a, a abomination of journalistic ethics the week earlier. Um, and it, they both were, you know, had tons of support within the Post newsroom. And so I think because Samas herself, it, it, what she was doing shouldn't have even been polarizing in a newsroom of adults. Like everyone could agree maybe that Weigel shouldn't have made that retweet, but anybody coming to Sondman's defense where she's publicly attacking a colleague like a petulant child, to me, that's just insane. And the fact that this split the Washington Post newsroom, a, a, a group that is supposed to be the most powerful journalists, the best people, they're at the top of their industry, the best journalists in the world, supposedly, yeah. is insane. And that tells you about who is writing our news, I think. And the whole thing is embarrassing and childish. And, and, and many of the reporters are ashamed that it, that it unfolded this way. I've had a pet theory about how, how this was going to unfold from the very beginning and why the, the management did what it did. That, and nothing that has happened since has disabused that theory. So let me try it out on you and yeah. see, see if you agree with this. So my take right, right away when they came out with this month unpaid suspension 
against Weigel, who was well-liked in the newsroom. Yeah. Uh, who was, had defended Salmez in the past. Had defended Salmez in the past, was on our trivia program last week. That's right. In fact. That's what did him in. That's what did him in. <laughs> People saw that. Yeah. And they're like, oh, wow, we thought he knew more than, more than this. <laughs> How did he blow this Nixon one? Actually, no, he got the Nixon one. Uh, so I think they came with this draconian penalty against Weigel because they thought that it would then turn the newsroom against Somnes, because they were operating under the assumption that the newsroom would not blame management who actually doled out the penalty, but would actually blame the woman who called Weigel out for the penalty. Mm. Even though it wasn't her decision of what the penalty would be, she was demanding some sort of penalty, and so therefore they were going to blame her for it. She then, I think, played very much into their hands by... Wild, wildly overreacting and then attacking Jose Del Real and attacking, attacking anybody who just days and days and days of, of and lo- like gradually losing the newsroom because the back story here for people who don't know it is that she had sued the Washington Post uh, for pulling her off of the, uh, the basically the Me Too beat briefly. Right. And that case was dismissed. Uh, she said she's going to appeal it. She has She's been a rabble rouser inside. And she had made a Me Too claim herself, which is why this all happened. Prior to her, or she was at the Post 20 years ago or 15 years ago, time off from the Post, made her Me Too claim and came back to the Post. Uh, She was also, I think, she was also punished by Marty Barron for tweeting about uh, Kobe Bryant's sexual assault after his death. And I think he, he was... 100% 100% wrong to do that. Like she was well within her rights to post to post that, and and so the newsroom because of the lawsuit and because of them wrongly coming after her for that the news man, newsroom management I think was in a difficult position. They they clearly did not want her to be part of the institution anymore, but there wasn't anything they could do about it, particularly because she had a lot of support, justifiable support because of that un, the unfair way that they came after her around the Kobe thing. And so this, I think, was intended to change the dynamic by turning the newsroom against her. Whether that was the original goal or after they realized if we give Wyla a one-month unpaid suspension, people are going to be really angry at Somnes over this. They, they, they must have known that. that. That was obvious. And they went forward with it anyway, hoping that actually she would lose the newsroom so that they would be freed up to make the decision that they did. Now, I think she played right into their hands after uh, Sally Busby sent out an email saying, a reminder, it is against our social media policy to attack our colleagues. Freaking teenagers. Like, within, within minutes, basically, she's attacking her colleagues again. And so that gives the HR department the legal comfort that they would have needed to say, you know what, this is a very clear yes. and direct violation of uh, of." orders, policies, et cetera. So this is insubordination. It's in your clause here. You're unionized, but the clause says insubordination is is cause for firing. You're fired. Well, and I, I don't think they were playing 4D chess. I think they actually, Weigel's suspension, their hands were sort of tied because of the human resource, the demands on human resources department and workplace um, dynamics and all of that. I think they kind of had to do that. I don't think they were playing 4D chess. It was just a benefit of the yeah, maybe. And, policy. And they knew they had to placate, um, not, not Sanmez, because they probably did know that nothing would placate her, but even some of her defenders. And in fact, what is so telling to me is that they 
weaponized these identity politics charges. They were counting, a Washington Post employee was counting how many white people, how many of his white colleagues had mm -hmm. retweeted um, <laughs> certain things. It is like insane. Um, and it shows, from my perspective, how weaponizing these policies of identity politics makes us worse. It defends bad behavior in so many cases. Like she's, you're, you're weaponizing identity politics to defend somebody who's just behaving unprofessionally, who's making everybody's jobs more difficult, who is undermining the credibility of the institution that signs her paycheck and signs all of their paychecks. Um, it's just wildly unprofessional behavior. Taylor Lorenz does the same thing with herself. Um, and she, like, she botched a story. And it's as simple as that. She still has her job. She's done it a couple of times. Um, and it's because these institutions don't want to be on the wrong side of people who are eager to weaponize these uh, shields, basically, to use identity politics, which, by the way, is important to some degree, right? Like, they're important conversations to be had about all of those issues. But weaponizing them so cynically um, defends a lot of really bad behavior and shields it from necessary correctives. Although I think it, what this also shows is that we're now in a cultural backlash period. And I think that's been evident that Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial showed us that. I think it's just kind of evident more broadly. But this is another example that shows us that the backlash is on because I think that if, you were, if the pendulum were still swinging in the other direction, that despite everything that happened, management might have been uh, it might have felt like they didn't have the ability to do what they just did. I was legitimately surprised that they fired her. Uh, clearly the right decision, but I think you're right. This is, this is the vibe shift. Uh, it's, it is. I wasn't because I've, I've been sensing this, this vibe shift. And, and I think that people inside institutions need to start understanding this. And this is the last point that, that I'll make on this. When it comes to Weigel's suspension, they have a union. Yeah. And the union is supposed to defend its workers when they're you know, in disciplinary proceedings. When Somnes was uh, disciplined for the Kobe Bryant thing, they immediately, the guild came out immediately and said that this is outrageous and everybody signed letters, mm -hmm. including Weigel. But because of the cultural valence of this one, the, the guild did not come out and do the same thing, which people need to understand. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but people need to understand what you have done is you've given up the union power and you've handed it over to management which can then use it arbitrarily if it decides to. If it wants to crack down on a worker, what it has to do is use a cultural lens or a cultural weapon to do it because then they can be confident that the union will give them a free hand to do that. The purpose of the union is to tie the hands of management when it comes to discipline. Yeah. No, I think that's completely true. And I think the, the broader picture here is that the metastasizing, um, because you know, you're sort of placating people who are making dubious assertions over and over and over again that these bad ideas have metastasized in a lot of our institutions and have hampered their ability just to do good work, to do what they're supposed to do, what their subscribers pay them to do, which is good journalism. Um, and they're hampered because they were winking and nodding at it and allowing it to metastasize. And now they're stepping back and saying, oh my gosh, what has become of the Washington Post? Right, and if you're handing over your worker power to management, then, then you might have a thing like Somnath getting fired. You have to be careful what, what you wish for if, when, you, when you hand over power to, to them mm -hmm. because they are going to then uh, operate how they feel like they want to, not how... Not necessarily in your own interest, believe it or not. That's very true. <laughs> we'll have more rising after this.
All right, well, a retired general has been investigated. He's now under investigation. You can see the headline there from the New York Times over undisclosed lobbying for Qatar. This is a huge story, A, because he's a retired general, but B, because he's the head of the Brookings Institution. This is the subheading of the New York Times story. Documents show that the Justice Department has records indicating that John Allen, who now heads the Brookings Institution, secretly lobbied for Qatar and lied about it to federal agents. This is a really complicated story because there's different layers of geopolitics in it. For instance, um, the Brookings Institution has had some work in Qatar for quite some time. Um, our policy with Saudi Arabia are wrapped into this. It is amazing that somebody at the helm of, I would say, probably the most powerful think tank in Washington. Would you agree with that? Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. probably the most powerful think tank in, in, in Washington with a lot of influence um, over our government was actually trading on his former public positions to influence foreign policy and was, it looks like in these records, intentionally not disclosing it and intentionally keeping it basically secret. That's a word used. I forget if it was by mm -hmm. him or one of his colleagues who was involved in this lobbying campaign um, from the, the documents. Right. Well, and, yeah, because a colleague of his had was getting investigated as well yes. and said, hey, wait a minute. Why are you coming after me when John Allen, I was working with John Allen doing the same thing and you're not coming after him. And they're like, OK, fine. Right. Guess we're going to come after him, too. Yep. The 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 Saudi context of all of this is is very interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. So Trump, uh, Trump, Biden is, is on <laughs> his way. Yeah, he's on his way to Riyadh to try to convince Mohammed bin Salman to pump more oil and lower the price of gas ahead of the midterms. Mohammed bin Salman doesn't want to do that. He'd re much rather see uh, the Republicans take control of Congress who are less likely to be investigating Jared Kushner and his all yep. of this different stuff. That's very clear. But, you know, he's he's open to talk. He's going to hear him out. And it and so it is interesting context that ahead of this trip, you have this news of this investigation into this Qatari influence peddling operation in Washington, D.C. That is something that the Emiratis, the allies of Saudi and the Saudis very much would want to see. There is this, for people who are not following this, there's been this kind of Gulf War mm -hmm. here in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. over the last 10 plus years that has seen hundreds of millions of dollars be lavished on Washington elites, either by, on the one hand, Qatar, or on the other hand, the Saudis and the Emiratis. The Emiratis were, they had their uh, little influence operation rolled up by the FBI recently when Tom Barrack, Trump's very good friend, yes. actually what some people say is his only friend, like the only person that he has an actual friendship with and who will talk to him like a normal person mm. back, back and forth. Everybody else is just either a sickle fan or hates him or, he, or just says, uh-huh, uh-huh, puts the phone down. Uh, Barrack indicted um, for this Emirati. Uh, and whenever you hear Emirati, it's also Saudi because uh, they're you know, very tight-knit. Uh, so it's, it, you could see it as uh, Emiratis and Saudis say, hey, wait a minute, There's, there are two influence operations going on here. You indict one of them, but not the other, mm -hmm. and, and you want us to lower gas prices? No way. And so you could see, it, you know, if you believe that the Justice Department sometimes acts as an arm of U.S. foreign policy, then you could see, you know what, what's, what's up with that Qatar investigation that you've been working on? We need, come on. Right. We need we need we need something. Shake the trees here. Give us something, because you know we we need we need heads on a spike that we can take to Riyadh mm -hmm. to get the ga get gas prices down. 
Right, and he's taking meetings. I mean, this is part of the, the evidence against him, again, is that he was, that General Allen um, was like talking to people. It's not just that his name right. was attached to it, um, which may have been the case in certain Hunter Biden schemes, but it's that he was like actively taking meetings, talking to people about it. His spokesperson claims that he was not paid. That is highly dubious, according mm. to the filings, that everything was legal. He wasn't technically lobbying, and there are some legal ways to get around that. We saw the Podesta group and Mercury try to do that in the Tony Podesta, Paul Manafort stuff. Um, but on the Saudi context, this is from the New York Times, this is the beginning of the Trump administration. Allen has just left the military. It's right before he's becoming president of Brookings. And he's saying, so Qatar was, according to the New York Times, try, frantically trying to fend off a pressure campaign, an economic embargo by its Persian Gulf rivals, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. Rumors were circling of a possible Saudi ground invasion. Mr. Trump mm -hmm. appeared to back the Saudis and Emiratis, and both sides of the dispute were spending heavily to win favor in Washington. Um, one of the uh, Allen's colleagues in all of this, quote, viewed the diplomatic crisis as a business opportunity, according to the filing, um, and said, if we can do this, we will own half of Qatar. Yeah. And, and people should understand this, uh, this notion that Saudi and the UAE were contemplating invasion of Qatar was not paranoia on Qatar's part. Like, we, like my, my reporting says that we have an intelligence that shows that this was a very real thing and that the U.S. had to come in at the last minute and talk them out of this and say, no, you, no you're not invading Doha. Mm -hmm. like, are you crazy? There's an American base with 10,000 troops. You're not going to shoot your way into a country mm -hmm. that has an American base in it. And so they, so they stood down on that. But they did blockade from 2017 up until the end of the Trump administration, blockaded Qatar. Mm -hmm. So a blockade against a country that has a U.S. base on it. And Qatar very much felt like they lost the fight for influence within the Trump administration because they refused to give Kushner's company a bailout for yeah. his property at 666 Fifth Avenue. So it would stand to reason that they then started ramping up their spending everywhere else mm -hmm. that they could find. Because they're like, if it's pay to play, like, well, I guess we got to pay. And it always is. It, like, like you said, this Gulf War in Washington, it is always pay to play. This is, for me, the crux of the story from the New York Times here. During this period, General Allen met several times with American officials, including members of Congress and H.R. McMaster, the retired three-star general who was then the White House National Security Advisors. But the document, citing an interview of General McMaster by federal agents, stated that General Allen never informed General McMaster that he was paying, being paid for his work. That is almost certainly true. I'm sure he did not say he was being paid for his work. It reminds he claims he's not. Right. He, right. he claims he didn't get any money. Um, I think there's serious evidence, as this these filings show, to cast that in doubt. We know he took a $20,000 speaking fee to go to Doha mm -hmm. um, from one of the people that was involved in this. So that in and of itself is, I feel like that's pretty damning. That's not a ton of money in the scheme of Washington lobbying, but I think there's, I mean, there, there certainly could be other stuff down the road. But that 20 k I mean, he wasn't the head of Brookings yet, but this is like, very telling of, I think, how these institutions operate. Right. And a little bit in Brookings' defense that the allegations are that it was, this was more personal, what he was doing on, totally. on the side. Yeah. On the other hand, if, he has, if, if Brookings knows mm -hmm. that he has these connections with Qatar and brings him on as a president, that is a feature. Like, that's the exactly. reason that you're bringing him on. Because usually you have the, the head of these think tanks. It's a fundraising job. And you're like, well, general, that's a weird, that's not somebody typically associated with being a great fundraiser. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, 
unless you're thinking like we're going to extract money from our client states around the world. And they're going to be the ones that are going to fund our think tank operations. Yeah, well, and interestingly, uh, in September, Brookings ended its affiliation with the Doha Institute, which it had had for a long time. Um, it's what year was that? This, this was September, I want to say 2017. Um, but it's the very, very interesting state of affairs. And Ryan, I'll just ask, the, the feature question is, is such an important one, I think. It reminds me, some reminds me of a great CNN article that came out when the Podesta Mercury stuff was going on with Ukraine, where they were meeting with officials at the State Department, Tony Podesta was, and they said, you know, it was pretty clear they were being paid not by this sham think tank that was set up, the mm -hmm. European Center for Modern Ukraine, but by, uh, at the time, uh, the leader of Ukraine. And they were like, it's, it was pretty clear what was yeah. going on here. Um, and it's, it seems like this is a really similar case. Well, if, you, if, a, if a think tank then brought in Tony Podesta yeah. to be president of, their, of a think tank, they, they, he would be brought in because of his relationships then with, say, Ukrainian oligarchs, and yeah. because you'd expect, oh, you can tap them for resources, and that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna fund these operations. And this is a this is a choice that we as a country make that we're gonna fund our intellectual uh, art architecture with foreign government money. Yeah, I I don't know what the other options are to, because, but to me. I think there ought to be, the same way there's a, a fund for kind of the humanities and the arts, there ought to be a, a fund that can somehow be, you know, shorn of like political influence that you, because you don't want, you want the U.S. government to have control over all of these think tanks. But at the same time, the public wants to be clear that public intellectuals and public think tanks are developing public policy for to borrow a term, America first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, seriously, yeah. Rather first or the Saudis first or the Emiratis first. Yeah, yeah or Paul Manafort first, 100%. Yeah, and this is like, it, it's... Or humanity first, something. <laughs> just not for Ukraine or, or for you know, whatever oligarch just yeah. is funding the operation. But it's a feature, right? Like, you, you don't get to be the president of Brookings. And the, a lot of people think of, like, official lobbying in Washington, but it happens through unofficial channels as well, just because people's sympathies have been bought over the mm -hmm. years via, via speaking fees um, and whatever else it may be. And this was just it was too good of an example for us to pass up. We had to have to cover this one because it's a great window into how this city operates, like you said. It's a choice, yep. and we've made it, um, yep. and not for, you know, it's, it's definitely not placing the interests of the American people who, uh, you know, pay the public salaries that then people then go trade on first. Yeah, yeah. very beneficial choice for a lot of people in Washington. And those, oh. those trips to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Doha are, are legendary. Well, so this... I, so it's, forget, the, like, just the fee. The trip itself, lavish meals, uh, falcon hunting, you know, all kinds, like, you hear the stories of people who went... It's and it, the, they become them. Uh, they become kind of bucket list things for you know uh, lanyard carrying DC people as well. Um, and it actually connects perfectly to your radar today too. Um, you know this this is why these global interests have outsized influence in Washington. It's not only because of the official lobbying, although you can always follow that footprint and it's very telling. Yeah. It's also because of what happens to these different channels. Yep, a lot for sale in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. That, that'll do it for a Rising Friday. That's it. Uh, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen well on 
on the go. We're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we are continuing to try to remember to read tweets <laughs> because we know that if you're listening uh, via podcast, you can't see the tweets. Yeah. I read read Jaeger's tweet today, so everybody listening on the podcast, welcome. Yeah, do you have Ryan to thank for that? Ryan, That's right. as, as always, very thoughtful and conscious. That's right, conscientious of <laughs> yours. Well, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. See everyone.